welcome to the latest installment of Paradigm Shifts, the official podcast of the National Foundation of Emergency Medicine. Uh, the purpose of this podcast is to create visibility uh, for young and prolific academic emergency physicians by highlighting their research and their vision for the field of emergency medicine. We hope to introduce these ideas to you, the listener, and to expand and maybe even redirect your thinking toward what's going to be the forefront of both science and philosophy in emergency medicine. So today, Peter Rosen and I are joined by Dr. Michael Ganetsky. Uh, Dr. Ganetsky is the director of the Division of Medical Toxicology at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Uh, he is core faculty of the Emergency Medicine Residency and the Harvard Medical Toxicology Fellowship. Uh, he teaches introductory pharmacology to the first-year medical students at Harvard Medical School and has multiple research interests, uh, including adverse events of the direct oral anticoagulants, uh, acetaminophen toxicity, opiate abuse, uh, and many others. Uh, Dr. Konetsky, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, so you have several research interests. Uh, you have several uh, academic interests and clinical interests, but the primary one that we're going to be discussing today is opioid abuse. It's a very timely topic. It's something that we've all known has been uh, a problem for quite a while, uh, and you have some paradigms that you want to suggest that we're going to be talking. And I like that these are bold paradigms. They are things that uh, will hopefully stimulate a lot of good discussion toward uh, figuring out how to manage uh, this drug in a population that we see in the emergency department. The very first one is to attempt to keep the opioid naive patient naive. Uh, the second one is that there's not necessarily any 100% safe dose of an opioid and that emergency, the third one being emergency physicians should be leaders in revamping the approach to pain management. Uh, so in kind of getting around to these paradigms, could you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this area of medicine? All right. Thanks, Aaron. Um, I just think back to when I was a medical student. Uh, I finished medical school in uh, 2000, and early on in medical school, I just remember being taught, you know what, opioids, prescribe them. Somebody has pain, you know, make sure that you treat their pain, and as long as they're, you're giving them an opioid for pain, it's not a problem. And I look back on those days and, and that teaching, and again, I went to a, a good medical school, faculty were, were very uh, educated, very smart, and you can find a lot of writing about how that, that education was influenced by pharma money, by uh, research, and I say research in quotes, that wasn't very robust. And when you look at the rise of opioid prescribing and the opioid uh, epidemic, it really mirrors the, that time, that those early 2000s when, when that teaching was prominent. Since then, my approach towards prescribing an opioid is uh, keep opioid naive patients naive. And my, my thought process is really twofold. One is looking at the pharmacology of how opioids affect the, the, the mu receptor systems. And the second is there's been a fair amount of epidemiologic publications over the past five or six years that really do show almost a dose-response relationship between the amount of an opioid, an opioid patient is prescribed and their risk of misuse downstream. And when we look at the opioid epidemic, when you actually ask patients who are now using heroin, or I should say fentanyl, because that's really replaced heroin supply, how did you get started? Many will say, oh, I just had a Percocet prescription. I had a, some prescription, and that's when the misuse started. So I'm curious from your perspective, uh, do you think that this is... Uh 
opiates that were used for a, uh, a purpose that maybe warranted it at the time, something like a long bone fracture that I think most of us will equate with intense 10 out of 10 pain? Uh, or do you think that this is opiate prescriptions that were given for ankle sprains and uh, abdominal pain of unknown etiology and uh, uh, you know abdominal cramps or something that was maybe a little more vague? Because I remember in medical school, I was taught very similarly of, uh, you know, if the patient's in pain, you have to treat the pain. Uh, and don't worry, because a patient that has genuine pain can't get addicted. Um, yeah, I was taught the same thing. And, and unfortunately, that is really not the case. I think it's both. Um, using opioids for a... Uh, something like uh, an ankle sprain, which when I was first started practicing, I would write somebody an ankle sprain for 20 Percocets. You know, I don't do that anymore. Um, or even if somebody really is getting an opioid for a long bone fracture, and, and I wouldn't hold back an opioid for a long bone fracture. But the problem is those folks are still at risk downstream. And it's, I think, beholden on us to try to minimize the amount and the duration, but also to realize that if somebody's had a week's worth of an opioid, even if it was for a long bone fracture, it's going to be hard for them to stop that opioid. They're going to have withdrawal symptoms. And I, what I've noticed in my surgical colleagues, when they discharge somebody from the hospital after having a, you know, say a significant uh, operation who's, who've had opioids for more than three or four days, they'll actually discharge them on an opioid taper. Because they've all started to realize this too. And often they're the ones getting the phone calls for the refills as well. Exactly. Um, so I, th I think it's definitely both. Um, I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote, which uh, may say something about my parenting. But So my daughter, who's eight, um, last year when she was seven, had an inguinal hernia repair. And uh, went to pediatric surgeon, very nice surgeon, and she, and she, she I'm an emergency physician, medical toxicologist, and she looks at me and says, oh, and I'm not going to give your daughter any opioid after the surgery. And I look back at her and I was like, yeah, and if you did, I wasn't going to give it to her anyway. <laughs> um, we saw very eye to eye. And, and again, this is an inguinal hernia repair, so maybe not a long bone fracture, but still, it's an abdominal surgery. They don't you know, go through the peritoneum, but still, it's an abdominal surgery. And for two days... My daughter, we gave her ibuprofen and Tylenol around the clock. She was in pain, but she realized that as long as she didn't move too much, the pain wasn't that bad. And then as soon as, as that pain was gone, she was like, oh, I must be better. I'm going on the playground. So again, this is an example of how pain is not a, something to be treated. Well, the issue to be treated was she had a surgical wound that needed to heal. And by minimizing the opioid she minimized her movement the wound healed and in two days she was happy as a clam now again the, the counter argument is I'm just a mean dad but, <laughs> which may be the case but still like uh, uh, this is an example of how you don't need an opioid with something that might, with a painful condition because the, the pain itself is a, a signal that we should be doing something which in her case was not moving too much you know the same is true for kids kids who have say a, a you know a torus fracture right so distal radius fracture often they don't need opioids when you get a splint on them and get them some Tylenol some ibuprofen they're happy as a clam I think that the problem is that historically we did everything in absolutes when I went to medical school we were taught not to give opiates to acute surgical problems because you didn't want to mask the diagnosis, which was errant nonsense. But it was a completely different attitude than the one you guys were taught. What we were not taught was what causes pain post-operatively and what can you do to relieve that pain. Because the less opiate you give, the better your post-op patient does. So I had some very intelligent surgical teachers who said the minimal amount of opiates that you can give is the best for your patient, but you have to supplement it with the reasons that they're having pain. So we did a lot of nerve blocks 
we did a lot of subcostal incisions rather than midline incisions, so you could block the pain with with lidocaine rather than with opiates. And I think the same thing is true in orthopedics. If you're not doing the subsidiary things, ice, elevation, rest, then all the opiates in the world aren't going to help you. And in fact, what your goal is in a post-op patient is to get them moving. The faster they move, the sooner they overcome the muscle spasm, which is what causes the pain, which takes away the need for opiates. So I think you need a balance between what can I do to get this patient moving and what can I do to get rid of the cause of their pain besides to relieve the perception of the pain. Peter, I think you're, you're, you're right on the, the money there. Um, and uh, like I said, some of my surgical colleagues have really limited the amount of opioids they give their post-op patients. You know, um, the post-op appies, they may give them a day's worth of an opioid prescription. Um, now, of course, you, you have to look at what the underlying surgery was. If it's a big X slap, you, you, you might, you're going to need a few more days. But you're right. The, the sooner you get up, the sooner you get moving the easier things are going to be. Again, to tell another story, family story, uh, and my wife will be horrified. Um, our, Sounds our like daughter, a great story already. <laughs> yeah, of course. When, when uh, maybe maybe the BI will be horrified, but um, but so when when she had a my daughter, she had a, a C-section because my daughter was breech, and after the C-section, the nurses were pushing opioids left and right to the point where she wound up having post-op constipation. And I'm I'm sitting there trying to not, have her not take the opioids, but I can't be there 24 um, seven. I don't think you know. In the end, she had a difficult post-op course because of that, because she wasn't moving as as much as she should have been. She wasn't you know using opioid sparing things like Tylenol, ibuprofen as much as she should have. So again, that was eight years ago. But you're absolutely right, Peter. It, it's it's. As, it's important that as soon as you can get, get ambulatory and figure out ways to do the uh, opioid sparing. And if it, if it is a big surgery, maybe it is um, uh, epidural anesthesia, right? But, but again, I think this is more for the surgical colleagues. They're coming around to this also. One of the, the great studies that, that really has come out in the past few years was by um, actually a, a surgeon at the BI. Um, his last name is Brat, Gabriel Brat. And he was looking at really surgical literature. And I think he's one of the, the folks who are going to move the, the surgical field in terms of their prescribing. If you guys want the, the reference, or I, I'm happy to sort of just review the study really quickly if you guys like. Please. Um, so, yeah, the reference is Brat, um, BMJ, tw- 2017. And what he did is he looked at um, a commercial uh, database, uh, at the commercial database from 2008 to 2016, and basically included subjects who had surgery and had less than seven days of opioid use within the 60 days prior to surgery. So, again, the idea is that these are opioid-naive patients, and their primary outcome was basically the ICD code for opioid dependence, abuse, or overdose. So again, it's difficult. With a lot of these studies, it's difficult to really get at robust results because we're talking outcomes are you know, either – they're basically the mining databases, so outcomes are ICD codes, things like that. But what he found was that um, the it was 0.6% was, was the prevalence of – folks who have the primary outcome, but for each additional op- opioid prescription prescribed, it increased the adjusted hazard of misuse by 44%. Mm. And if you look at the paper, it's a straight line. It's a dose-response relationship. The risk of misuse goes up linearly with the duration of the initial uh, prescription or the uh, morphine mill equivalents per day. And it's this dose-response relationship that is frightening to me because what it's saying is that if if you extrapolate back to zero, is there really not a safe initial dose? In other words, is this a straight line back to zero or is there some inflection point where there is a safe dose and there's no risk for misuse downstream? But he really, I think in terms of surgical literature, he really is, I think, one of the, the pioneers because this is, uh, I think, affecting the way surgeons are thinking about their post-op opioid dosing. I think 
That's very important. And, it, you know, you kind of mentioned, like, is there a safe point on that curve or on that straight line uh, of where you can give opiates and they're not going to, to develop the dependence? I think this kind of dovetails in with a lot of the individualized medicine that we're hoping we're going to be able to practice soon to say that you may have the quote unquote addictive gene that you're more predisposed to uh, have a dependence. You're more predisposed to have um, uh, kind of the need for that euphoria that you get. I know I have a very sharp delineation of patients that will tell me Percocet uh, is the only thing that works for me. And will, and the other half will say Percocet makes me hallucinate, makes me nauseous. It makes me feel terrible. And so that perception is very different. I've never taken Percocet myself, but I'm part of me is curious, just like what, you know, which side of this dichotomy am I going to be on? Or, you know, how do you tell uh, who's who on this? Because I think that there probably are patients uh, that will say, I'd never want an opiate if I don't have to. I don't like the feeling it gives me. And I find that there's certainly a lot of what we see in the emergency department are people that really chase that feeling that they get from opiates. So I'm curious if that may actually elucidate some of who is going to be responsive and who's not and who is going to be at risk and who's not. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a, a very important point. I, I'll tell you, when I the only time I had an opioid was um, when I had my wisdom teeth. I had four packed the wisdom teeth removed. Same um, I was actually, uh, this was When I was a medical student, I was part of a, a clinical trial because it saved me money to get them removed. Um, but, and they gave me Vicodin post-op, and I took one Vicodin, and I, I felt so miserable. I was like, I would rather have the pain and then the feeling of the Vicodin gave me. Um, I think there's there's two areas, though, that need to be teased out here. So one is addiction. And addiction is, I don't want to talk about much now because it's a complicated process. Addiction, the way you, you boil down addiction is that it's sort of nucleus accumbens and dopamine. That's the Dopamine is the, the neurotransmitter involved in addiction. And... You can be addicted to a lot of things other than opioids. They don't have to be drugs either, right? I mean, people have gambling addictions, right? These are all people of addictions to their iPhone screens. My wife says I have that problem. Um, so it's that dopamine surge that makes us feel good. There's a so that you could that could certainly be involved with uh, with opioids. There's another. There's something a little fundamentally different about opioids that's not just that dopamine system. Um, and it's interesting because in uh, 2017, there was an editorial in JAMA, and the author called it, um, termed opioids, risky drugs, not risky patients. Hmm. Which is this idea that, yes, there are people who have a predisposition, you know, that addictive personality, but it's not, it's a little different with opioids because anybody can develop a problem and it, with it, and it's because of pharmacologic factors unique to the opioid itself. And it really is fascinating when you go back and look at some of the literature on the mu receptor. And at this point, I may geek out a little bit, and please cut me off if I do. Geek away. Um, but if you go back and you look at um, animal literature in the 1960s, so again, not the most recent, <laughs> but um, there's a great study published by Kornetsky in Science. I think it was 1968. And all he did is said, look, if I give one dose of morphine to a mouse, what's it going to do? And what they found is that actually that one dose changes the, the, the way the mouse perceives pain for several days. One dose. Um, there are, again, humans are not just big mice. Um, but there are um, similarities now that we're finding. So I was just emailing one of my uh, anesthesia colleagues a few weeks ago. Turns out patients who get remifentanil infusions during their surgery, post-op, immediately post-op, will have higher opioid requirements than those who don't. And might actually will be at risk for opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Again, we're talking about a short, a short infusion of, of uh, remifentanil. Um, it, it just there is something fundamentally that, that the uh, different about the exogenous opioids we administer compared to the endogenous opioids that alter the, the mu receptors 
in a way, and again, this process I'm talking about is more desensitization and not tolerance. So desensitization is what happens when you give a short course of a medicine and changes the receptor physiology. Tolerance is what happens with the, you know, we think about, which is somebody's been on, on a medication for a long time, now they need more of that medication to give the same effect. So this is a desensitization issue, but it clearly happens with opioids. And it's powerful enough that in an animal, it could be one or two doses, or at least in a mouse. Which gets back at this idea that, again, these are risky drugs, not risky patients. Now, and again, I didn't coin that phrase. I should probably be citing it. But um, Now, again, are there patients who are going to have an increased risk because they have some kind of underlying physiology that's going to increase the risk of addiction? Of course. But it is really, I think, twofold, both the, the, the opioid itself and the, the predisposition for addiction. That's a very good delineation. I almost wonder if, uh, you know, pain is an important part of your body's fight or flight. It's, a, it's an important indicator that something is wrong so that you just don't sit there and ignore it. You don't just stuff it down with opioids. I wonder how much your body says, I know you may have some, there, there seems to be some endogenous open, uh, opioids coming from somewhere. I need to ramp up the pain to let my myself know this is really bad. That's really interesting, the difference between desensitization and the actual kind of uh, addiction, which is, I guess, the the label that we like to put on it of, well, it's addiction, and that's something that's not going to happen after just one dose. I think that uh, emergency doctors, probably, I can speak for myself, I don't really think about my single dose of morphine for an undifferentiated abdominal pain or, you know, for a patient that I'm still working up for chest pain. Uh, I don't think of that as causing problems down the line, you know, it's not my one dose it's going to be addictive you know, it has to be the primary care doctor or the surgeon who's prescribing long lengthy outpatient opioid prescriptions but the desensitization that's a very uh, unique concept that maybe I'll have to re- revisit how I view this well I think that historically we also need to remember that it was probably in the 60s that we started the nonsense of the fifth vital sign being pain and that no patient should ever have any pain and that we were bad doctors because we weren't immediately relieving everybody's pain and we didn't talk about what we could do besides giving opiates to relieve that pain and we need to remember there are conditions that are bad for the patient to allow them to suffer. And I'm talking about acute problems. Maybe it gets your attention, Aaron, but if it isn't relieved, it causes physiologic destruction of the organ that's in pain, like heart attacks. I think patients with heart attacks do better when they're not having chest pain. And yes, there are other things we can use besides opiates, but they frequently don't get rid of pain until they get rid of the the uh, obstruction in the coronary artery. So what can we do to tide them over to get the, the cure? And the other issue is we haven't classically written for large numbers of opiates the way some specialties do. I had a back surgery three years ago, and I was absolutely stunned when my orthopedic surgeon gave me about 90 tablets or something when I left the hospital. And I wasn't even taking them anymore. He said, well, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable at home. But at that point, I no longer needed pain relief, certainly not from opiates. So I think that there's a, a couple of calculus problems. How to relieve the acute pain? How do we not avoid uh, the induction problems by relieving the acute pain? How long do we treat acute pain? And what can we use besides opiates to get rid of that acute pain successfully? Yeah, no, Peter, you're absolutely right. I, I think emergency physicians are getting bad press in terms of opioids, even though the evidence suggests that we prescribe less than two or three percent of the total opiates looking at compared to all the other professions. You know, surgeons are, are a great example. Unfortunately, 
when a surgeon does prescribe those 90 Percocet and the patient may take a day or two and does fine, that patient may not get rid of those 90 Percocet and they're sitting around for that teenager to, to find in their household. So that is still a risk factor for the family, not just for the patient. The whole issue about pain as a fifth vital sign, you know, that could be a podcast in itself. I really don't want to get into the history of how this epidemic started because, you know, uh, I'll wind up talking for hours and there's been a lot of good reporting uh, already about it and some books about it. So if we want to delve into it, I'm happy to, but I'm trying to avoid doing that. But you're right. Pain as a fifth vital sign is one of the, I think, unique aspects that has increased the amount of opioid prescribing. You know, what was fascinating, so there was a study in the New England Journal um, that got a lot of press, um, and I'm sure you guys know it. It was in 2017, the author was Barnett. I'm sure you guys saw it. It frustrates me because this was a non-emergency physician studying emergency physician prescribing patterns. It also frustrates, frustrates me that it was a good study. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, you, you can't win, but let me sort of talk about it for one second, then I'll, I'll get back to something else. But Because uh, one of my, the goals of this podcast for me was maybe to review some of the, this literature has come out. A lot, of these, again, a lot of these studies have really come out over in the past five years, so this is fairly new. So what, what Barnett did is he used the uh, uh, you know Center for Medicaid Study, Medicare Studies carrier file for 2008 to 2011 and identified patients with an index emergency department visit who did not have an opioid prescription within the prior six months. So again, opioid naive patients. And then characterized the emergency physicians. So again, I, I dislike non-emergency physicians studying emergency physicians but this was a good study, as high intensity or low intensity based on their prescribing pattern of opioids compared to other physicians in their institution. And basically the primary outcome was long-term opioid use defined as within 12, basically 180 days of use within 12 months after their index visit and found that in the high intensity physicians, it was 1.5%. And the low intensity providers was 1.16%. Hmm. And the number needed to harm was 48. Again, getting this idea that you know maybe there is no safe prescription, but the number needed to harm is 48. All right. The thing that, again, really scares me, and you got to go look at the paper, but there was a, a stepwise increase in the quartile of the prescriber. Again, a dose-response relationship between how much the opioids of the physician prescribed versus the risk of, of use downstream. Again, all these studies, and no one study by itself is is perfect because all of these, except one, which I, I like to talk about, are dredging large databases trying to get at an idea. But they're all showing a dose-response effect, which then gets at the idea what happens when you extrapolate back to the zero, right? Um, now, the idea of that single dose of morphine, you know, that's, I'm, I'm not worried about giving a single dose of morphine if a patient needs it, right? If somebody has an acute abdomen, you know, a, a kidney stone, although we can argue there's other ways to treat a kidney stone. Um, now, long bone fracture, I'm okay with doing that, but in my mind, there's a threshold for when I start an opioid altogether. Um, I'll give you an example. I had um, I was taking care a few weeks ago of a 13-year-old who had an injury, and the parents, the nurse, were all looking at me like, "Why am I not giving him some oxycodone? Because it was a very painful injury." And they're all looking at me like I'm this mean physician. Although I basically told them a story about how my daughter and I didn't give her uh, opioids for her inguinal hernia repair, and they just realized I'm just a mean person altogether. <laughs> um, you can't win. But- but like, you know, like, look, I understand the natural course of their injury. It's going to feel fine in a couple hours, you know, with whatever local care we provided. And the kid was fine. An hour or two later with, you know, ibuprofen, Tylenol, some local care, the kid was fine. And but, I, but it took me some time to explain to the parents and to the nurse why I wasn't going to do that, why I wasn't going to do an opioid. 
if that kid came in with a femur fracture having fallen off his bike, it's a different story, right? Like, I'm giving him, I'm going to give an opioid. That's fine because, A, I'm not going to be able to provide definitive care, and B, uh, that the course of this illness is going to last a little bit longer, right? And it's that threshold that I could tell you 10 years ago, I would have definitely given this kid some oxycodone. I think that uh, it's such an American thing uh, that Americans should not have to feel pain. Uh, I feel like that is something that was kind of ingrained in me in medical school of your patient can't feel pain and that a lot of patients come in and saying, but I have pain. The reason I'm here is because I have pain. And so, you know, having non-emergency doctors call out emergency physicians, I'm going to call out my own biases and uh, non-evidence-based practice that I do of one thing is sometimes it is easier whether you're busy whether you're uh, frustrated with a patient whether you're completely confused uh, giving pain medicine or giving a treatment it's the same as an antibiotic prescription well just get them out the door and I'm on to my next patient it was an easy thing for me to do and I think another thing is this helplessness that you feel as a provider when the patient comes in with a complaint that uh, you want to address but you don't really know how. I remember I took care of when I was doing one of my uh, neonatal ICU rotations, this baby was born. It was a very traumatic birth and uh, the baby ended up having a femur fracture. And one of the neonatal nurses said, oh, that x-ray looks terrible. Can we, can we give the kid some Tylenol? And I laughed at her. Tylenol? This is a femur fracture. Are you kidding me? And my attending said, no, no, let's do Tylenol. We did Tylenol. Kid was fine as long as we didn't move the bone. Kid was great and uh, I've always been struck by how children the stuff that we treat with Tylenol and ibuprofen for children uh, adults would say I can't believe that's all you're going to give me so I think that it's the college age student that comes in with uh, sore throat that we think well let's give some liquid Lortab or something or the patient that comes in that's having uh, bad cramps or is having um, uh, you know myalgias from flu uh, that we say well let's just try to get the pain better. I think that's probably the place that we need to start with instead of as an emergency doctor, I always say, but what about my long bone fractures? Well, I don't have an ER full of long bone fractures. That's not really where the problem is right now. And I think I've seen, at least with my residents, the number of tablets on a prescription shrink to uh, what used to be 30 or 60 down to about five for patients going home and they spend the time talking to their patients about use this only for sleep, for acute pain, for something that's really not manageable by other factors. You will not get another prescription because this hurts you. And what I'm most impressed about is at least the residents that I see now that are they're getting a very different training than I did. And they're being trained to actually talk to their patients about this uh, so that it's not this, no, we don't do that anymore. I think patients are very shocked by that when, that, when this first started to come to a head. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and this is, again, when we talk about paradigm shifts, it, it takes time for us to speak to a patient about why we, why I don't want to give them an opioid. It's much easier to give them prescription as opposed to explain that, again, these are risky drugs, not risky patients. By the way, Dowell JAMA 2013 is the reference to that. So I'm not, I don't want to use somebody else's no quote. Play, no plagiarism <laughs> on the podcast, right? <laughs> no plagiarism on the podcast. But it takes time. But I, I think that has to be a paradigm shift within our field because we can actually cause harm downstream without even knowing it. And I, this is not a one-to-one. This is not a, you give an opioid, they'll be misusing. But there is some increased risk. Look, when you have a busy department, it's hard to take those extra few minutes to, to explain why you don't want to do it. Now, there has been a, a huge uh, perception change over the past few years. You're right. Like, I have patients come in and say, please do not give me or my family member an opiate. That makes my job a lot easier because I don't have to have that conversation. They understand it. There are you know, most of uh, the residents aren't writing for long, uh, long duration prescriptions. The surgeons have stopped writing for longer duration prescriptions. So this is there is a a perception shift that that is happening, which I think is great. But I think that is one of the paradigm shifts we do have to think about spending those extra few minutes. I'll, I'll tell you another great story. I had um just a few weeks ago, I was seeing a, a gentleman with, with the uh, lower back pain. You know, something we see every now and then, right? And this again, this was not chronic lower back pain. This was episodic. 
you know, what we get, this is the, the, the punishment we get for walking on two feet. You know, if we walked on all fours, we probably wouldn't get episodic lower back pain. And he was doing his best to manage with Tylenol and ibuprofen. And the only reason he was there is because I think his wife made him come in. And he knew that if he waited a few more days, his pain would get better. And he told me he started taking some tramadol. And we started started having a conversation about this, and, and he was explaining to me, well, he had some lying around, and 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 then he starts lecturing me about how every, all physicians say tramadol is not addictive, and it's not you can't get dependence, but you really can, and it feels like every other opioid. And he starts lecturing me about this, and I was like, this is great, <laughs> like you know, just spending those extra few minutes just having that conversation about the nature of the back pain and so on, like you get so much insight. Uh, some, it is a paradigm shift we have to think about. It. it is something that's happening uh, all around the, the house of medicine. One study I do want to talk about briefly, and this is one that, again, um, looked at misuse after a single prescription. And this is the one that really bothers me the most. Was The author is Miech, M-I-E-C-H, and it was published in Pediatrics in 2015. And what these folks did is they did a sub-analysis of the Monitoring the Future study. So again, this was a prospective study. Very different than a lot of the other literature that's coming out about, about the single um, prescription misuse. And what they looked at is 12th graders. So getting into this um, question about kids and adolescents, 12th graders who had one legitimate opioid prescription when they were 12th graders. And they followed these kids for five years or so. And by the time they were 23, the kids who had a legitimate prescription for an opioid had a 33% increased risk of opioid misuse. Wow. And this was a prospective study. And of course, you know, one of the, the things everybody says, well, look, these are teenagers, they're adolescents. We all know these, you know, we were all there, right? These are the bad kids. These are the kids who drank alcohol every, you know, on weekends, they smoked pot. These were the kids who were getting in trouble, right? I mean, so what they did is they went back and they, uh, when they when they looked at these kids, they gave them a questionnaire of their attitudes towards alcohol, towards marijuana, t- towards things like that. And they, they stratified it on a scale of one to nine, where one were basically the good kids and nine were the bad kids, so to speak. Well, the kids who had the increased risk of misuse were in the, there's like two to three strata. So the good kids. And those kids had a relative risk of two to three. Wow. Compared to the other strata that actually didn't have an increase in relative risk. And again, the study sort of bothers me because number one, it's perspective. So it's very different than all the others that are out there coming out there now. But the other was that this is mind-blowing. These were, you know, these are the kids you don't expect this to happen to. And it's within four or five years from what you're describing. Four to five years. Um, so they basically followed them, I think, till they were 23. And again, you can, you know, you can look at it and say, look, this was a sub-analysis of another data set, your dredging data, and so on. So yes, there are always criticisms of these studies. But, and no study by itself, I think, stands on two legs. But now that you have five or six of them coming out, and they all show similar findings, I think it really does you know, make your head turn a little bit and say, maybe there is something here. Um, you know, I will say that the CDC in their 2016 guidelines, which of course folks who are, are pro-opioids can't stand, but you know, when their guidelines, they said that we should be prescribing three days or less. And I want to make the argument that, you know, one day is, is we should be prescribing one day or less, because by the time you hit three days, your risk for misuse, misuse downstream has already started going up significantly. Mm-hmm. I don't think the CDC guidelines are are strict enough. And again, this is all within the caveat of you have to ask what's the what's the illness? Is this a polytrauma patient, or is this you know a sore throat? Right. Well, I think what makes it especially difficult is that we have a large population of patients with chronic pains that we have no means of relieving. And we have to deal with that group while we deal with this other group that has an unknown set of problems coming from legitimately treating their acute problem. I think we can conclude, however, there are certain kinds of pain that don't require opiates. I don't ever remember giving opiates for sprained ankle. 
I always thought immobilization, crutch, ice, and elevation was all the patient needed. And they did fine. I think there are other entities that cause pain that don't need opiate relief. Sore throat being a classic one. Want to give some steroids? Fine. Don't give opiates. And I think that that there is a non-linear relationship between any biologic agent that you use. There's probably going to be a level of drug that's relatively but not completely harmless, and then you're going to get a vertical rise. And a, a very quick change over a, a small increment of that dosage. And we don't know what that is for all opiates, never mind individual ones. So I agree with Mike. We need a paradigm change, and we need to be much more vociferous about this is how we manage the discomfort of this entity. It does not require opiates. I'd like to uh, kind of carry that into the third paradigm shift, which is that uh, emergency physicians should be leaders in revamping the approach to pain management. So I'm I'm curious, Mike, you've described a couple times uh, that you have these conversations with patients. Would you give us a little sample of what you tell patients of why you're not going to give them opiates, maybe a little script that other people could adapt and uh, use on their own? You know, I think, just to take a step back, um, Unfortunately, when you look at some of the lay press, you know, some of non-emergency physicians studying emergency physician practices, we get blamed for opioid prescribing when we, emergency physicians in general, prescribe way less than many other specialties. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, we're also right up in the trenches. We're often the first physicians to encounter the patient some of the toughest things fall on the broadest shoulder, so to speak. We have to carry uh, some of this moving forward uh, as a specialty, and and we do have to be some of the most uh, vociferous about this uh, because... like you said, you know, what other specialty you know is going to do this? I think the surgeons start coming around a little bit. It, it, nowadays, it's it's I think a little bit easier to have that discussion, to have that script, or in my mind, because I often start with, look, these are dangerous drugs. You can look at the news. There's an opioid epidemic going on, and folks who have a problem often got started because they got a legitimate prescription for an opioid. I tell patients that I try to describe the natural course of their illness to them. Your ankle sprain is going to be swollen and hurt for a couple days. But if you put some ice on it, you try to keep it up, you try to stay off of it, you can do some ibuprofen, I promise you it's going to get better. So I try to describe the natural course. And then I, I do just put it flat out saying, look, there is a risk. We don't know what it is, but it's not zero if you take an opioid for three days maybe two days, maybe one day. And I just kind of, I have that conversation. Nowadays, I'm finding it's actually very easy to have that conversation because of, you know, the the media reporting on the opioid epidemic. And everybody's heard something about this. You know, I I think that the emergency departments that are doing the uh, opioid alternative therapies, uh, you know, um, things like regional blocks, it's great, and, and that's a, a wonderful thing, but I don't think every emergency physician needs to become an advanced practitioner of uh, you know, regional blocks to be able to, to have a conversation about um, uh, prescribing and, and the, the risk for misuse downstream. I've also found that just in the last two years, it has been a lot easier to talk to patients about why we don't want to give them uh, opioids. And we had a uh, we had a uh, kind of an endemic uh, uh, heroin problem here in Tucson, Arizona, about a year, two years ago, uh, among 13 and 14 year olds, uh, which was really striking. And you start telling people that, uh, and you say, "Look, these aren't 13 and 14 year olds that are just." 
deciding they're going to shoot heroin. This started someplace, and we do not want to uh, be giving your children opioids for a problem that we know is going to get better. Their their uh, distal radius fracture is now in a splint. As long as they don't knock it against something and don't t- take it out of the splint, they're going to be fine. Tylenol and ibuprofen is going to work just great. Uh, I have gotten far less pushback recently, which has been really, really good. And I find that it's also very comforting knowing that uh, our college, uh, our uh, all of our professional societies uh, that are, and even the CDC and the rest of the media are really behind us on this, so that that patient complaint, which I think a lot of us still kind of fear, uh, doesn't carry as much weight if you can say, look, I spent time counseling the patient about this, counseling them about opioids and their, uh, you know, risks and benefits and uh, decided that this was not the appropriate course for the patient. Uh, We have a lot more in our corner to actually practice good care. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and, you know, uh, the the whole uh, the patient complaint issue. Yeah, it it is a big one, I think, uh, on the top of our minds, especially when your reimbursement is tied to your, you know, Prescati scores, things like that. What I will argue, though, is that having that conversation will avoid the complaint. The complaint, I think, often comes from uh, folks who are on opioids chronically. It's a very different population. And again, I'm not, Peter was uh, alluding to this, I'm not even touching the, the, the population who are already dependent, who already um, are tolerant on opioids. We see those very commonly in emergency departments also. I have a very different conversation with those patients. That may be a, for another podcast, but um, obviously, you know, if somebody you know, already has an opioid tolerance, if you stop the opioid, they're going to have withdrawal symptoms. And I think it's something that we need to address. We need to um, uh, be able to have that discussion with patients also. Um, you know, I'll give you a good example. Um, I was taking care of an elderly patient a few weeks ago. She was in the ER at 4 in the morning. And she was there because the person who was prescribing her opioid didn't get back to her and didn't refill her prescription. She had been on it for you know 10 years. And you know, I just had a very simple conversation. Are you here because you're in pain? Are you here because you're having withdrawal symptoms? She's like, I'm having withdrawal symptoms, doc. I'm like, I get it. You've been on this for 10 years. So like, yeah, I mean, I'm having pain, but I'm also having withdrawal symptoms. Well, you know, we know now that after a while, the opioids are actually what's causing the pain. You know, there's things like opioid-induced hyperalgesia. There's withdrawal-associated sight pain. All these phenomena, the opioids contributing to it. And you can't just cut that patient off either because they're not going to feel well. I have a different conversation, though. I mean, I gave her a dose or two to get her until she could talk to her doc the next morning, the following morning. But I also said, look, you need to have a conversation with the person who's prescribing this. And I, because it's all electronic records, I could verify that she was getting this medication, she had run out, all those things. You have a conversation with them about maybe starting a wean. Because when you wean your opioid, your pain will actually get better. It's a, it's a, but it's again, it's a very different conversation, and it, it, maybe not the focus of this podcast, which is really, again, in my mind, keep the opioid naive patient naive. But I think it is a conversation that we need to have with, with, with those patients. She was thankful. She was thankful that I actually talked to her about this. <laughs> because she's like, yeah, I get it, you know? Um, I have a feeling that the, those bad scores are not coming from the patients we have a conversation with. Yeah, there, there's an article I remember, and again, I can't, I, I'm not going to be able to reference it either, but it was basically that patients that receive opiates do not give better scores necessarily. What gets you better scores is, I believe, that face-to-face time with the patient. There's been a number of emergency departments that put in place a rule where you're no longer giving opiates for headaches, and I wondered if you wanted to comment on that. It's tough to talk in blanket statements. You're right. For things like migraines, we probably shouldn't be giving opioids because uh, you're not going to break the migraine with the opioid. And, and there, again, there's a risk for misuse. There's a risk for the, the headache recurring. And there are better therapies for migraines than opioids. 
I do hate it when when places do blanket statements because you really do have to assess that you know every patient. And what if it's a post craniotomy patient, right? I, you know, they probably have legitimate pain. So, but yeah, if you really do have somebody with a migraine, there are I try to avoid opioids. There are better therapies. Assuming this is not that opioid tolerant. You know, already somebody who's uh, on chronic opioids, in which case you, you maybe have that. You may have to have a different conversation. The other medicine we should think about maybe cutting out is furosemide, right? Because um, patients do get rebound headaches with furosemide too. And I find you know, just about every patient with a true migraine, I get them feeling better with you know something like Compazine or Reglan, some Toradol, some Benadryl, a dark room, and some time. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of these conditions that, uh, you know, you could say, look, there's really no, uh, uh, you're not going to get help from this uh, because it's a chronic condition. And opioids for chronic conditions, other than something that I think is clearly terminal, doesn't really have a great outcome. It's just going to be get more opioids. So I, and I think the oxy-free ED or some of these concepts, they're great to put forth but i i have i have seen different eds try that just kind of locally and regionally and fall back because there's one practitioner that doesn't quite agree with it and kind of spoils it for everybody else um but it's still even though it is a risky drug we use a lot of risky drugs all the time we use you know drugs that will trash your kidneys trash your liver trash your heart trash your thyroid trash pretty much everything but we use them sparingly so i think that they're they're still is an indication for some of uh, some of these sometimes in very educated uh, doses and very judiciously used doses. Um, but you know, the complete we don't use opioids in this ED. Is that something that you would get on board with? No, I, again, for what uh, what everybody said, I don't think I would get on board with that because I still I still do use opioids in my practice. But I, I like you said, I, I use them very judiciously. I use them when you know, look, you have somebody uh, polytrop. I'm a patient who's got multiple long bone fractures who, yeah, of course I'm going to give them an opioid. They're not going to get better in a day. You know? <laughs> you know, I still will use them every now and then for kidney stones when the Toradol really doesn't work. I'm not a huge believer yet of IV lidocaine for kidney stones, but maybe maybe th- th- there will be some literature that, that suggests that it does work, you know, more so than just time. But for, for a lot of the, the illnesses where I know what the natural course is going to be, I really do try to try my hardest to uh, avoid it. And if I do give somebody an opioid, I'm trying to limit it to one day. Because I, I'm starting to believe that maybe that's when the, the inflection point is. Maybe it's one day for the, the risk to go up. I will say, getting back to the, uh, the satisfaction scores, um, there was a great study. I think it was Archives of Internal Medicine in 2011. I don't have the author off the top of my head. And they, they looked at um, press gainy scores and mortality. So it wasn't just for opioids, but everything in general. And what they found was that the better the press gainy scores, the higher the mortality was. I remember that paper. That's a striking uh, blow against press gainy. <laughs> right. And, and again, it, it makes sense, which is it's easy to do a procedure. It's easy to do, and sometimes you know, uh, lucrative, to do the procedure, the study, where the patient perceives they got better care. But all these things have real risks. You know, even doing a CT scan, which we do, you know, well, how many times a, sh- a shift has risks, you know, in terms of maybe with a small risk of, of the radiation or even the IV contrast. I mean, I've seen patients have anaphylaxis from IV contrast. There is a risk to these, even simple procedures. But there, there's this perception that it's better care because you're getting more stuff done. My hats go off to the primary care doctors who are able to walk a patient through the natural course of their illness and prevent you know those extra procedures those extra uh, uh, tests that do increase you know potential uh, harm yeah the uh, it, you know this is certainly a pendulum and we swing too far to either direction and you're probably not where you should be you should be somewhere along the middle of uh, you know not everyone gets opiates and not no one gets opiates uh, but it's tough because it's all a risk benefit for each individual patient and uh, you know given that it's still a little early in the academic year I have interns that are still really struggling with the notion that there's no correct way to manage every 
every condition the same, every patient the same, that we've got some guidelines and we've got some, you know, ideas. We've got to know the physiology, but they really struggle with, well, I have, there's really a risk and benefit to absolutely everything. Yes, there is. And that's why you get paid the big bucks. That's why you spent 25 years in school and residency in order to, uh, you know, get out and practice. Uh, and it's uh, honestly, for me, it's been one of the most rewarding things that I get to do is to actually sit down with patients and talk to them about this and try to distill that into a five minute, 10 minute conversation to do what is best for them. Yeah, I completely agree. I just would like to reemphasize there's another group of patients that deserve whatever amount of opiates it takes, and that's the dying oncology patient who has chronic pain. And to worry about addicting such a patient is misunderstanding what your medical goal is for that patient, which is to relieve his suffering, not to worry about the opiate effect. And yet, that's the group of patients that is most likely to be denied adequate analgesia. So I think that needs to be remembered. But other than that, I'm in accord with uh, what you're recommending, Mike. Certainly yeah, agree with that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And, and I'm, I'm, all discussion excludes the, the, the right the, the diagnostic patient palliative care. Again, you know the the, the focus that. I'm really interested in is the primary prevention is that keep the opioid naive patient opioid naive because there really is an increased risk of misuse even after one prescription for however long it may be a couple days and it's because again it has to do with the the, the medication itself uh, in addition to whatever predisposition the patient may have for an addiction you know it, it really is the the, the the unique physiology of the mu opioid receptor the you know irony is that with all the research that's done over decades on the mu opioid receptor, we still don't understand how tolerance happens. It's still not completely worked out. You know, desensitization is different than tolerance, and it just, it, it's, it's striking how powerful of medications these are when a remifentanyl infusion during surgery can change your post-operative perception of pain. Um, I will tell you, there was a, a study this year in uh, a fairly prominent journal looking at um, mu opioid receptor signaling, and it, it completely... It changed decades of the pharmacology understanding because what these, you know, the, the, the typical pharmacology teaching on opioid receptors is that you have a receptor on the cell membrane, and once that receptor gets internalized into the cell, it's not active anymore. It's not doing anything anymore. These folks actually were able to, to tag those receptors in their active and inactive state, and found that even when they're inside the cell. They're still signaling, and depending on where they are inside the cell, changes how that signaling functions. Hmm. Which is actually fascinating because 2018 has changed decades of how we teach, or at least how I think about, you know, GPCR receptor regulation, which is once it's endocytosis done, it's not active anymore until it comes back to the surface. That's not true. So even in 2018, we don't understand the pharmacology of mu opioid receptor regulation, and it, it really is, I think striking and you know uh, hopefully we'll get better drugs out there but there was um, a recent drug and I'm blanking on the name that didn't get FDA approval as a mu agonist that was supposed to be safer because if it changed the regulation of the um, the receptors dif differently and it didn't get FDA approval because of the same side effect profile and it's because I don't think we as just science really understand the regulation well enough to be able to design drugs to prevent developing tolerance yeah more and more as we get to understand it we probably learn even more of what we don't understand it feels like for a long time we've been swimming upstream trying to get people to not be taking so many opiates and i feel like the current's finally changing a little bit it's getting a little bit easier to do and i found a lot more traction with telling patients look my goal in the ed is to make sure you don't have anything dangerous going on and to try to help you feel better but my goal is not to take your your pain completely away my goal is to try to get you to a, a place where this is manageable. And, you know, hopefully over time this will start to get better depending on, as you commented, that your course of illness and here's what to expect. And, you know, come back if this changes, things get worse. Because um, uh, it, it's... It, it, 
I think that just kind of prescribing, uh, giving people a blank check with opiates and saying this will fix your problem is uh, very disingenuous because it's the same as giving a two-week prescription of antibiotics to somebody with a cold and, you know, yeah, within two weeks you are definitely going to feel better. It has nothing to do with the prescription I just gave you. Bingo, bingo. And, and you're right. I mean, telling people, I, this is part of that script, I tell people I'm, my goal is not to relieve your pain and that pain in and of itself is a sign of what is what is the underlying problem and pain is gonna pain might actually help you because it might immobilize you a little bit and you'll get better and that the goal isn't to treat your pain but to treat the underlying cause of the pain it's like trying to treat a cough i've told patients i go look you don't want your cough to go away and patients with duchenne's muscular dystrophy when they can't cough they get pneumonia and we actually hook them up to a cough assist device to make them cough your cough is your friend your cough is going to help you get better faster and not develop some you know dangerous side effect and i know that pain has a similar profile there's a reason that you have it and it's you know it's not we don't want you to cough so much that you can't breathe we don't want to be we don't want you to be in so much pain that you're vomiting all the time and debilitated uh, but there's a degree of it you have to expect with a course of illness no you're absolutely right I think cough is a great analogy um, and, and it crosses over because uh, there's times I've seen people treat cough with codeine which is a medication we should never be using anymore because it's a pro-drug and the pediatricians have figured this out but the adult docs haven't yet I once got uh, a, a patient complaint because I didn't give an 18 year old uh, who had a, a, a documented history of codeine abuse, a prescription for codeine for their cough. And it took some time to explain why this is a bad practice on many shouldn't levels. shouldn't have taken all that much time, and yet you have to <laughs> devote your time to it. Exactly, exactly. So, but cough is a great analogy, which is, and the pediatricians have figured it out. The pediatricians don't just treat a cough, right? They don't they don't give Robitussin. They don't give Zexorothorphin. They don't give codeine. I've, I don't know why in adults we're, we're, we're trying so hard to treat their cough. It's a great analogy. It's the same reason adults feel that Tylenol and ibuprofen is not going to be enough for me. Right. Well, thank you again, Mike, uh, for joining us. We really appreciate you uh, just kind of giving your insight into this. Uh, I think this will probably help a lot of people that are trying to formulate how they're going to approach this in their own ED. So thank you very much for spending your time and educating us. Oh, thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter.